Steve Aaron, author of Matilda Empress, and I'm talking with David Rockland. Hi, David. Hi, Lizanne. I am David Rockland. I am the author of The Luminist and more recently The Night Language. I think we uh, both share genre of historical fiction and having read some of your beautiful book, The Night Language, I was really curious to hear your thoughts on some of my thoughts about the enterprise of writing historical fiction in general. I mean, sometimes I think, you know, are we really giving voice to a particular person in history? Or are we talking just about the human condition in general and, and almost using them as a vessel to right. talk, to say our own story or to, or to make our own um, observations? Right. You know? And I'm, I'm curious because I've thought about this a little bit with my own writing. And so, I, you know, it's not often that I honestly meet um, another author who's doing historically set writing. It seems like most everyone is, is sort of very contemporary. And I'm sure that there are a ton of reasons for that. So I would love to know how you came to historical writing. Or was that something you intended to do? Or is it just that the stories that have drawn your attention happen to be set in a period that well predates you? I think I'm, I was probably born in the wrong time. <laughs> <laughs> and the life that I live now, it's, it's uninteresting to me for two reasons. One, I feel that not only do I already know everything I want to know about it, I, I feel that everyone around me is also an expert. So it seems strange to me that I would write a book explaining the world we live in to people who also live in that world. I mean, the sort of thing that Henry James did for his contemporaries or Trollope, it, that I don't think I'm that talented that I could open everyone's eyes to something they weren't already master of. But looking back in the past, I did feel that I had a better sense of it than other people, maybe just because it interested me more, uh, but also because I have always been drawn to a different kind of life than the one we live now. And the only stories I want to tell are set before 1920. The only stories I can read are stories set between 19, before 1920. So I'm willing to read modern interpretations of that period. I just have a hard time you know, reading a story set it in my own my own world. See, it's what's interesting to me is is what you have to say about the the purpose of your writing, or at least or at least one of the purposes that that has meaning for you, which is to illuminate something for your reader. Um, I mean, I would I would suggest that you have so much to say, and 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 so beautifully do you say it in terms of the emotions that you infuse in your work, that that can be extremely illustrative for your reader. But I get what you're saying, that you either don't necessarily feel that you have a lot to say to kind of explicate our current time, or you're just not necessarily interested in, in doing that. You know, you, you, you may feel on some level that, you know, whatever needs to be said about the depersonalization of community through social media, it's been said, it's been said elsewhere. I'm not going to replicate what's been in, you know, Slate. But I, I'd much rather go back and take a look at, you know, the, the Age of Enlightenment or something like that. I mean, I don't think I'm really talking about our current world at all. I think sometimes I realize I'm just talking about the human condition in general. 
Mm-hmm. And even though my book's set in the 12th century, there are certain absolute truths about human relationships and about the human, you know, the impossibility of <laughs> of, of this of mortality and and the impossibility of love and connection mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and and the difficulties achieving all sorts of ambitions, personal, right. social. So sometimes I think I'm talking about things that are always true. And sometimes I'm talking about things that were true. I don't think I'm ever really just talking about what is true now. And sometimes those there are books like that. More generic historical fiction tends to be really a modern story just in costume. Right. <laughs> Where the characters just say, speak as, as, as we do now, and they think thoughts that we think, and they're just in fancy dress. And I've never liked that kind of book, though I think they're quite popular with readers. I mean, for me, I really wanted to have characters that were medieval and thought medieval things in medieval right. language. I mean, that's very tricky to make them accessible to the reader and to make the reader care when the dialogue is, is in a different cadence. You know, I think about that uh, that line of, it's not cliff notes, but it's simple, similar. It's called No Fear Shakespeare. And when my kids were in, in high school, they always had the No Fear Shakespeare edition of whatever play they were reading. And sometimes, you know, I thought about that because you don't want to be a book that people find impenetrable. I mean, then you can't send any sort of message. And, and I noticed how well, actually, you how well you did this this exact thing. You some of your passages are really lyrical and and so beautiful and so infused with the atmosphere of the 19th century. And yet, and yet, they're not inaccessible. There, it's very clear. Thank what you so much for and, yeah. Thank you for saying that. That's I mean that that's my greatest fear. Uh, neck right next to authenticity. Where, you know, and I'm sure you've run into this and I want to know a little bit about your process for researching and really just kind of surrounding yourself with the period that you're writing in until you feel that you're able to write it in an authentic way. I'd love to know what your process is for that. But next to authenticity, just allowing the book to be open and to be kind of like the way I think of it, sort of emotionally generous to the reader and not just be elusive and purposefully difficult or or so high-minded in terms of its writing that you almost only wrote it for people who are in MFA, which to me is like, why, why did you bother? You know, so that, that kind of authentic, authenticity that can, if you're not careful, if you're not doing it well, drive you right over the line into appropriation, that those are my two biggest fears. So I'm I'm grateful to you that you found it to be accessible, but I, I would like to know, um, you know, to bring your book specifically into the conversation, how did you find yourself entering this world and taking enough of a writerly survey of it to be able to understand it in a way that allows you to render it the way you have? Well, part of it, the, my first step is always finding the facts out and not just people, places, and, and dates, but mm-hmm. the, the the nitty-gritty of what the food was. What was that yeah. bench the character is sitting upon? What did it look like? What is it made of? I care really, I care very much about set decoration. <laughs> and then once I know the world, then the next step is to find, is to make 
the interior life of the characters be, as you say, authentic. And just steeping myself in things written at that time is usually my approach. So mm-hmm. I find the text even of the, the lyrics of, of the contemporary music, the actual, just to know what poetry they were they were setting to music, to read mm-hmm. all the 12th century at the time was sort of the birth of the romantic novel. So reading all of those first romantic poems, uh, reading philosophers, reading books of magical spells, reading recipe books, reading letters. There are lots of letters that are extant between my characters. And so all of that, just to get into the rhythm of the language and the the way that they spoke to one another is, is very important to me. But Again, I always had to remember that I was reading translations from the Latin or from an ancient version of French or or so maybe a, a Middle English. I had to remember that it was already at one remove. Mm-hmm. And I had to be careful also, you know, when I was quoting scraps of letters, you know, in terms of what you can actually borrow, you know, the, the rules have gotten much, much stricter. So you cannot unless you were the one who has translated them yourself, use someone else's translation and think that you were just quoting this historical character when really you're quoting someone else's translation of that historical character. You, I had to translate the material myself or paraphrase or take it out or I had to be very, very careful about that sort of material, all the while really wanting it to be as authentic on a very granular word-by-word, phrase-by-phrase level and it was something that I that was the joy in it for me was to try to have Mm -hmm. to create a book that would not have been inexplicable (laughs) to the person (laughs) I was writing about Uh, while of course the challenge and this was what you know people told me uh, along the 20 years it took me to get the book published but you know people often would say well your heroine this empress she's she's too autocratic she's too imperial like can't you make her more you know more relevant to a modern day reader to someone who might buy this book and so that was always my challenge making her dynamic enough that you cared about her and and even you know empresses are people too so I had to even medieval ones so how can I make this woman truly medieval but someone the reader cared about and right. she's yeah. an empress, you know, not just is she set far back in the past, a foreign country, as we know, but also an empress. Mm-hmm. So how do you get people to care? And then, and then you had to trace through how did she come to that role? And, you know, is that was that a birthright, you know, issue that that's how she got into that role? Or, or does she have a warrior's instincts? And you have to kind of trace those threads for your character. But I guess this question is a little bit of the the, the historical fiction version of how do you feel about the age-old question of character likability? If you're writing about people who are truly medieval and some of the things they think, some of their views on everything from equality to race to sex and sexuality, they are of their time. And so to a modern eye, they're going to be potentially troubled. Um, How do you navigate that? And as a writer, do you care? Or are you really basically saying, you know, loyalty to the story first? No, I think I wanted to have her think the things she would have thought. And yet, if the 
if the reader knows why she thinks those things, then it does go far in terms of mutual understanding. I mean, not all of those issues come up in my book. Certainly some do. Um, actually, our modern ideas of romantic love are almost entirely dependent on 12th century ideas about romantic love. So that wasn't a problem. And, and, and I think people had sex in the past much more than people think they did. Um, so that was fun too, to um, explain, you know, how that was similar and different, you know, what sort of, sort of rituals and protocols were around, were around those right. relationships. Um, but right, she was an empress. She was born the daughter of, of Henry I of England and then married the Holy Roman Emperor. So there's no one to the medieval understanding. There's nothing between, you know, there's the sort of Holy Trinity and then there the Holy Roman Emperor is right after God in terms of um, authority. He's, his authority was divine. So she, when her husband died and she was no longer this d divinity, she was then again this unmarried daughter who went back to her to England and her father said, well, you, you know, why don't you be my heir? Your brother has died, so you should be the heir to the throne. And none of the his, you know, barons and all the powers, the sort of the lesser um, lights of England, they sort of pretended to agree, but they didn't really. And when the, her right. father died, her cousin stole her throne instead. And then there were, my book's about the civil war between them. But uh you know, she felt outraged on moral grounds because it was her throne. It was her throne because of her birthright, because she, these barons had sworn to do what her father wished. She had a legal, you know, she had moral authority to it, a legal authority to it. She had this other divine authority that she wasn't willing to let go of. She didn't give, let go of that title of empress or, you know, a big a seal that she had with her, you know, her um, image and, and that word on it. So, I think people understand the idea of frustrated ambition and being mm -hmm. and having something that was promised to you and that did in fact belong to you taken away. And so that's where I try to make the connection. It's not that it's more almost a metaphorical equivalent. I mean, you don't have, you can see a woman who's hit a glass ceiling or had her career interrupted or had a man butt in line ahead of her and take the job that was hers. It was meant, was promised to her by the boss, you know, right. and she was next in line for it. So, I mean, I think people can appreciate it that way without believing in the divine right of kings or you know, really mm -hmm. caring who was, you know, head of the English empire. It was an English Norman dual empire. I don't think the reader has to really care about that. Though, of course, the type of person who buys my book is usually you know, someone who does care about English history and about these disagree, you know, past disagreements about the right to the throne. But yeah, it's very, it's always a dance. One of the things about the Middle Ages is that people didn't really think about their inner life as much as they thought about their outer life and the rituals they performed and the, the, their symbolic value. Certainly that's what an empress thought about. So whenever I needed to make the character more relatable or I needed to have emotional intensity, I had her doing ritualistic and took emblematic things so that she was, it's authentic in that she's performing on the outside what she's feeling on the inside. Mm -hmm. So again, helping the reader see 
that if she's casting a spell or self-flagellating or leading her men into battle, it's because of these emotions that are dry, you know, that are driven these actions. Right. But she couldn't talk about them. All she could do with her frustration was lead some troops into battle or absolve a leper of his affliction. I mean, those were, her, <laughs> those were the ways she could, she could act. That was, that's 12th century therapy right there. Exactly. Exactly. And, but my book is really, I mean, there's so many ways that it, that it is relevant metaphorically. This civil war that my heroine fought against her cousin, her cousin was also, there was gossip at the time about their relationship. So in my version, they're also lovers. So my heroine is frustrated sort of in her political ambitions and in her romantic ambitions. So again, you know, it doesn't have to be that the reader cares so much about whether this empress or this cousin of her sits on the throne, but the fact that he made, you know, that he broke her heart, that they do care about that. And, um, it was all tied up with this other political drama, but because I have sort of equal measures of love and war and because her antagonist politically is also her romantic obsession, you know, I think there are lots of different angles for, for people to come to the story with interest and, and, and to give it a try. It absolutely sounds like it has very broad appeal and maybe even despite your best effort, it does have echoes of our current times. <laughs> I know that you prefer staying in in the period but you know if anybody's looking for sort of the equivalent of an equal pay act situation where you know women are being overstepped by men they're not being paid their equal share they're not being considered equally in the workplace or in politics there are echoes of that in this book which i think really broadens your readership it does sound extremely interesting i have a question because i know that the folks who listen to these podcasts we we probably have a pretty big audience of writers who may not be published as, as you and I and, and other authors might be, but are still out there laboring with that goal in mind. So with that in mind, and sort of for them, I'd love to ask you about how, as a writer, you, to borrow a phrase, kept hope alive while you worked on this, rewrote it, sweated, bled, cried over it, and eventually found a home for it after a pretty considerable period of time. How did you persevere? That's a good question, because certainly because I had to persevere for an entire generation, I probably passed through all the 12 steps of, <laughs> you know, denial, outrage, bargaining, you know, there was, there was probably every, um, every approach. You know, I think they're just, for me, it was a midlife crisis because so much time had passed. So I was at the point in my life where I had to say, what has, you know, what has my life, if I look at it, you know, now I can step back and see what have I achieved that I meant to achieve. And like my heroine, I hadn't achieved this thing that I thought I had a legitimate reason to think might be in my future. Uh -huh. So I just realized I was not, that wasn't acceptable to me to be, to not be the thing that I thought that I was, to not be able to define myself as a writer or to uh -huh. say when meeting a stranger that I was one. And right. I, and I felt truly inside that I was. So it, I think it was an act of sheer, it was outrage that I had 
not made it happen for myself, that I had let a, a series of no's be the definitive answer, that I wasn't going to accept no, ultimately. So that's what happened for me. And I would say also it had to do with, again, being older, you know, as I parented my, my kids who are grown, saying, have I modeled for them, especially as a woman, have I modeled ambition? Have I leaned in? Have I shown them that I wouldn't give up, that I was going to be this thing that they knew I intended to be? So, and I, you know, I did other things. I, originally, I was an English professor, so they knew about that. And then I was doing some other work with this novel thing going on on the back burner. But if I, if that's what I intended, I wanted to show them you did with an intention. You tried, then you didn't give up. And that was, I had witnesses is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> <laughs> well, it sounds like you illustrated for them the number one attribute that I think all writers need, which is, you know, obviously you need talent and you need, you know, a desire. But what you really need more than anything is relentlessness. And without that, nothing else, nothing else will survive. So, but here's a question that I get frequently at, you know, panels and, and at my reading series and, and such when people come up to, to chat a little bit about writing or about their own work and the publishing process and, you know, how to find an agent and things like that. This question comes up and I think it's more of an existential question that I, that I present to you for your own thoughts, given what you just talked about in terms of, um, you know, trying to model uh, for your kids, the, the fact that you were not willing to take no for an answer. Do you feel that you were a writer because of the effort, all the years of effort of writing? Or did you have it in your head that I can't call myself a writer until I'm published? I think I privately called myself a writer, but hesitated to do so publicly. Because the next question at any cocktail party is, really, what have you written? <laughs> and I didn't want to put myself in that situation. Um, not, and it was more a, a way of protecting myself. To keep my ambitions private was what I did for a long time to protect right. myself. And it's interesting now, that's the moment for me, not even seeing the book in the bookstore, having people you know, write me on social media saying they're loving it. Or, or, none of that strikes me as powerfully as the cocktail party situation now when people say, what do you do? And I say, I'm a writer. And they said, oh, what have you written? And I have an answer. You know, I've written this book <laughs> wherever fine books are sold. Like that moment, I'm I'm not over that moment, even though it's been, you know, over a year. <laughs> you, you you will not get over that moment if I'm any, if I'm any illustration of that. It, it always does feel quite nice. Um, yes. I, for me, it's, I, I think I'm not, you know, I, I, I have not asked where you're from originally. I'm uh, from Chicago. And for a while, I, I just thought it was sort of a peculiarly Midwest thing that when I moved to Los Angeles, where I live now, um, and I met people and they would say, oh, I'm an actor or I'm a screenwriter or I'm a writer. And, you know, I made, I would make the same first question error, but, you know, maybe once or twice at the most, oh, have I seen you in anything? Or, oh, what have you written? And the response was, well, I haven't done anything yet, but I'm studying for it. And that's what I believe myself to be. 
And I became extraordinarily grateful to be, I mean, I know a lot of people make fun of LA because, you know, as, as the sort of the stereotype goes elsewhere in the country, it's just a bunch of people who walk around saying that they're an actor, but they've never been anything. And I think, you know, I'm, I'm looking at it from a very different direction, which is the country is full of a lot of people who dream of doing something, whether it's acting or writing or painting or dancing or, you know, going to law school, whatever it is, but they don't do it. They don't actually effectuate those, those dreams and goals. They just say, well, I never got the chance to, or I never had the opportunity because I was doing this or that. But if I did, I know that I would be that thing. And they can kind of hang on to the comfort of, had I been able to, I totally would have, without ever having taken the risk of, I'm going to go try it and I may fail. And then I have to figure out what's in me to either not give up or give up. And so when I moved to LA, very quickly, I, be I became convinced that I was living in a place where a lot of people, most of whom candidly came from other places, I didn't really meet a lot of native Angelinos and, and still don't know that many, um, but they, if, the, if they were in creative circles, they had gotten to a place where they just finally said, no, I'm not going to just sit with the, the what if anymore. I'm going to go do something about this, come hell or high water. And if I fail, whatever, it's not a failure if I'm trying. It's a failure if I'm not even going to try. And so I kind of, I, I love that, you know, and I, so I do take pains in my reading series to make sure that all writers, whether published or not published, can be very proud of the work that they're trying to do and the words that they're trying to put out. And if they haven't been traditionally published yet, that's just one aspect of writing. But I still kind of have, I think what you have, which is a little bit of that feeling like I, it's for me, just for me personally, I want to be, or I need to be more validated than that. I just, I need it. And I, and so I'm envious of writers who don't need it and who still feel like sort of complete in their writing. I never did until I was published the first time and, and now blessedly the second time. Um, you know, I, I'm, I was just and probably am still not secure enough in my writing to to forego that feeling. So I'm glad you have it too. No, I do. I mean, I think, I mean, there's different kinds of writing too. I mean, there's writing that is meant to be part of a conversation that you have with someone you don't know, the reader. And that, if you don't, if you aren't published, you don't have a reader for the most part. I mean, now there are a lot of different platforms where people can get readers too, you know, through their own, you know, without gatekeepers. But, you know, certainly there weren't those possibilities when I first started writing my first draft. Um, they hadn't even invented the internet. So <laughs> that's how ancient I am. I mean, I, started my book, you know, in the mid nineties, but I really wanted, I couldn't say I was a writer until I felt that I had a reader, mm -hmm. which isn't to say that I don't think I'm good at it when I write no. in a journal, no one's ever going to read that, but I still think it's well done. Right? No, but, the, but the first time That's you started writing thing. something that was yeah. intended to be a conversation, you yeah. wanted to have the other side of the conversation in there. You know, I think it also has to do with having been a professor of literature first. And I felt that, you know, I really knew what a book was. It was this thing that I taught. And I mean, I think that was also part of knowing that I could do it was having had 
the expertise to to teach it <laughs> and and to spend a lot of years talking about what made a book, what made it right. powerful, what made it beautiful, what made it relevant to to young people. And so mm-hmm. that made me, I just thought I could be part of the conversation with readers. I could, my thoughts could also be passed along in this tangible way in a book mm-hmm. that they held in their hands. So that was part of it too. Yeah, I mean, it really is to be admired that there are people that are so sure they are something without other people buying into that. I mean, that is really right. something incredible. It um, is. I, I, I totally agree. It might be generational because, again, with social media, people create their own worlds, their own identities, their own, they market and promote and they create their own personas and they define themselves all day long. And for me, yeah. you know, isn't it, and isn't it interesting the way they define themselves? I mean, if you look at Instagram, nobody's posting bad news. Everything is a gorgeous vacation. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. I mean, there are these, there are bad news Instagram channels. They're instas. They're called. Well, so so my children educated me about this. They're called finstas. So they're I I you would think that would mean fake Insta and you would think that would mean the things are better that they post, but actually usually young people on their Finsta post the seedy side, the seedy underbelly. Oh, and but those accounts are extremely, extremely private. So hmm. it's it becomes I mean, even though these are incredibly new, incredibly new medium, it really does start to replicate older ways of communication where you know there's some sort of channels which are private only for the the eyes you know, of your closest cohort, and there you put the truth. And then for a wider circle, you have a, you know, a, a much more sanitized and, mm-hmm. you know, much more self-promotional information that you send out to a, to a greater number right. of people. And of mm-hmm. course, that's what you do in real life on all sorts of other ways. But, it, you know, Instagram really, and really has started to replicate, you know, and people are connecting with text again to one another. So I think it's, Incredible. I think Twitter and Instagram and, and I mean, I think, you know, it's like a short epistolary little <laughs> bulletin that <laughs> send out to people. I think it again really matters how witty you are, how quick on the uptake, how fast right. can you turn around your jokey remark? I think yeah. it's, it's like, it's like being in the court of the sun King in France you know, where <laughs> your whole reputation. It does, it does how- bring us quite, yeah, it does bring us quite full circle in that, you know, in life you kind of hold yourself out in a particular way. But if you really want to know what's going on, look at our writing. So I suppose that does take us to it. It also kind of takes us to where we are, uh, unfortunately, out of time on this podcast. But before we go, I would love to ask you, what are you working on now? Is there anything you can share about that? Sure, I will. If you will, I am working on another novel set in the 14th century about a woman who was a lady in waiting to Edward III's Queen Philippa. And she was, at the time, it's in the early 14th century, it's before the the plague, it's in a time where there were foreshadows of the Hundred Years' War to come. So again, Mm -hmm. love and war. In in a time traditionally thought of as dark and yet full of sort of colorful moments. You know, there's a lot of jousting. There's a lot of love poetry. And you? I am working. I'm about halfway done with novel number three. 
which is called The Electric Love Song of Fleischelberger. <laughs> and it is a somewhat lighter in tone novel about a young German man in the late 19th into the early 20th century, who, because of a traumatic and yet impossible to explain near-death experience, really becomes an extraordinarily ordinary person with extraordinary things happening to him without him even realizing it. And it's based very, very loosely on the kernel of a true story about the man who quite accidentally discovered the electroencephalogram. In the, and it, what it really kind of deals with is how all of us have our own white whales that we spend our life chasing and probably never catch, but in the doing of it, build our lives out of these extraordinary tiny moments that just go unrecognized as we traipse through our life. And, and so it's just a more heightened story kind of about that. And that I'm, reminds I'm, me of the quote that you put in the cover of your book, The Rambo. I, I made the whirling world stand still. Yes. Yes. One of my all time absolute favorites. It is tattooed on my right arm as we speak. <laughs> this has been an absolute joy to speak with you. I cannot wait uh, for more of your work. I hope that we meet IRL. And uh, if you're ever in LA, anywhere uh, around the time of my reading series, let me know because I'd love to have you there reading with us. Terrific.